Our second lesson is from the Epistle to the Romans, from chapter 4, reading verses 13 through 25. Let us continue to listen for the Word of God. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. But the law brings wrath, but there, where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall be your descendants. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. Therefore his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The late Paul Tillich was a brilliant and very complex philosophical, systematic theologian. He taught for many years at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, he was a brilliant man, uh, but frankly, he was not one of my favorite theologians. The truth of the matter is that Paul Tillich was so di deep, so weighty, that I could hardly understand what he was writing about. And one of my favorite stories from seminary days, when we were rather forced and required uh, to read Tillich, was a story that was going around campus that was not only humorous, but maybe even insightful, at least from my perspective, as a struggling student. The story is told that uh, Paul of Tarsus and Paul Tillich got to heaven at the same time. And they were greeted at the pearly gates by Jesus, who went up to Paul of Tarsus and says, Paul, who do you say that I am? And Paul of Tarsus said, well, I agree with my colleague, Simon Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, very well said, you're welcome, come into my glory. And he turned to Paul Tillich and he said, Paul, who do you say that I am? And Tillich responded, well, ontologically, you're the ground of my being. Existentially, you're my ultimate concern. And Jesus said, huh? And I find myself identifying with Jesus at that point because frequently what Paul Tillich is saying goes right over my head. But in perhaps his most popular book, the one that sold the best, at least, The Courage to Be, he says something that even I 
could understand and found somewhat insightful in his book, The Courage to Be. And what he argues in that book is that there is only one true rival to Christianity. Ever since its inception with the resurrection of Jesus, there's only one rival that is still with us. And do you know what that rival, what that rival philosophy is? It's Stoicism. Stoicism. It goes back a long way. If you go, uh, Zeno of Athens is uh, often regarded as the father of Stoicism, but that goes back at least three centuries before the Christian era. But there are many philosophies that are at odds with Christianity, but maybe Stoicism is the one we need to take most seriously, even in our own day. Stoicism teaches that people ought to simply resign themselves to things as they are. That reality is fixed. It's static. Human beings have little if any power to change anything about us. And therefore the best thing that human beings can do is simply accept things as they are and live consistently with nature. The Stoic says we should give in uh, neither to joy nor to grief. We should recognize and be indifferent to both pleasure and pain. And since we cannot change things as they are, and since things as they are are not even capable of being changed, then we need to simply manage our own desires, our own dreams, control ourselves, become the master of our own fate, the captain of our own souls. You see, for the Stoic, the universe is rigidly determined by natural law, and God always abides by this natural law that God has established. And therefore, we human beings have no control over what happens. Whether it be good or evil is really only in our minds as we perceive it. Everything that happens in life is morally neutral. Maybe you're beginning to sense how this is at odds with the Christianity, especially at odds with an Easter faith that affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb. Christianity says that reality is not static, powerless, or predictable always, but rather life is dynamic. It's powerful. It's, it's surprising. God does awesome and amazing things that we could never even have imagined, much less understood. And because of this, life is always open to new possibilities for us and for others and for the world about us. And when we're dealing with difficulties in life, whatever they may be, if we're trying to confront racism or climate change or the COVID-19 virus or anything else, then how the Stoic approaches that malady and how a person with an Easter faith would approach it are radically different. The Stoic says you simply have to go along to get along. Don't try to change things. Even the change you would try to institute might do as much harm as good, so don't worry about it. If a Stoic were to move into a neighborhood, a crime-ridden, drug-infested neighborhood where gangs were in control, the Stoic might say, well, there's nothing I can do to change this. I'll just kind of go along in order to get along and accept things as they are in this location. On the other hand, if a Christian were to move into that same neighborhood, 
a Christian like Francis Perkins or Dorothy Day, they might well conclude that we can't leave things as they are here. These conditions are abusing God's children, condemning them to lives of ignorance and illness and misery and poverty. We've got to do something about this, and with God's help, we can. For the believer, whether that believer is a Christian or a Jew, and perhaps even uh, a Muslim, I'm not sure where the Islam comes out on this particular topic, but we all believe that God can and does do amazing, miraculous, transformative things within us and about us. And because of that, there is hope for us and for our world, whatever our circumstances may be. It was no stoic who wrote in the Psalms and said this morning, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among mortals. He turned the sea into dry land and passed us over through the river on foot. We went through the fire and the water, and yet God brought us out to a spacious place. Come and hear all of you who fear God, and I will tell you what God has done for me. Ours is an awesome God, always has and always will do amazing, miraculous, and transformative things among us. You know, it makes a great deal of difference in life. Whether or not a person believes that life is open-ended or closed, whether human history, human life are in the hands of capricious, impersonal fate, or whether life and history are in the hands of a personal and powerful and loving and responsive God who has created each and every one of us and in Jesus Christ has saved us. Years ago, when John Claypool was a young Baptist minister in Mississippi, we overlapped for a few years when I was in Vicksburg, and he was serving at the Northminster Baptist Church in Jackson, uh, although he died years later as a bishop in the Episcopal Church. But John was a great leader of the Christian community in Mississippi in those days, and he led a workshop that I intended, attended one time, and he told of an experiment that was done nearby at Duke University by a graduate student in the psychology department. Maybe you've heard about this uh, experiment that the student uh, led. But what he did was he took two identical rats and put them in vats of water. One vat was sealed tight, shut. The other vat was left a little open at the top so a little light could come in and a little air. And the two rats were dropped into these vats. The rat that was in the sealed vat swam for six minutes, gave up, sank to the bottom, and drowned. The other rat, amazingly, swam for over 36 hours until the experiment was mercifully ended and the rat was saved. So, what was proved by that? I don't think anything was proved by it. What was revealed by that experiment? Did it reveal that maybe that first rat was a stoic and the second rat was a baptized believing rodent? I don't think so. But we're often told that where there is life, there is hope. But the reverse is true too, is it not? And is that the lesson from this experiment? Where there is hope, there is life. Maybe the second rat could sense that there was an opening. 
maybe even can sense that there was oxygen available. And if he or she struggled long enough and hard enough, might even find a way to make an exit from that vat. Bible scholars tell us that the Stoics had somewhat of an influence on Christianity, but it was no Stoic who wrote to the Romans and said of the God who is the force behind the universe that he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. It was no Stoic who said that the promises of God are open to all who believe and obey. Father Abraham was no Stoic either. For Paul says of him, hoping against hope, Abraham believed. And thus he became the father of many nations as promised, despite the age and the seeming barrenness of both Abraham and Sarah. Next week we'll look more closely at the story of Abraham and Sarah, and I would encourage you to read ahead in the middle chapters of the book of Genesis prior to that. But friends, as Christians, we are an Easter people. And we proclaim an Easter faith. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize not just in Easter's tide, but always, is the ultimate affirmation that reality is open-ended and that life is subject to miraculous and new possibilities. If that empty tomb that the women discovered on Easter morning was emptied by nothing less than the love and the power of God, then the Stoic has to go back to the drawing board. The resurrection is either history's greatest hoax or it's history's greatest hope. If the resurrection were simply a manufactured tale, a clever trick, then we Christians are, as Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, among the most to be pitied. But if God Almighty liberated Jesus from the tomb, if God raised the dead to life, then God's love is stronger than human hatred and God's power more awesome than worldly strength. That is to say, if Easter is true, then we need not resign ourselves to things as they are, ever. Things within us, things in our families, things in our workstations, in our marriages, things in our churches, in our nation, in our world, through the redemptive and creative power of God, there are new possibilities for each of us and for all of us. And therefore, we dare not give up on ourselves or on others, because to do so would be tantamount to giving up on God. I overlapped for several years when I was in Charleston with Anthony Holtz, who was the rabbi at the Reformed Congregation a few blocks away from the church I served. And he told me one day that for the Jew, the true heresy is despair. That's the chief heresy. Because despair removes God from the picture. Despair dismisses the power and the presence and the love of God. I realize, of course, that all of us, each and every one of us, I'm sure, are tempted at times to give in to the climate of despair that we know so well. Who of us does not feel overwhelmed on occasion by life's realities, by its injustices, its cruelties, its hardships? Who of us has not been frustrated by our seeming inability to change things as there are to make them? 
a substantial difference in life around us. And yet, and yet, if Christ is risen, risen indeed, then the tombs of despair and defeatism have been eternally opened. There is hope for us and there is hope for others. And by God's grace, there are new possibilities out there that perhaps we cannot even see or imagine in the present moment. Some years back, I read of a case I've never been able to get out of my mind. I wish I could recall the name of the social worker who told of an experience she had in Louisville, Kentucky years ago. She was sharing a case history with her fellow social workers. And she told of walking through the ghetto in Louisville, Kentucky. This would have been 20, 25 years ago. And she saw a little boy that was sitting on a tenement step. He was just a crumbled mass of human flesh, uh, very crippled. And she was so taken by him and the sight of him that she sat down beside him and started asking him about his situation. What she learned was this, this little boy was hit by a car several months before this. And this was the result of that accident. The child's parents had just moved into the city from the hills of Appalachia. They didn't know where to go to help, for help. They had no money to, to get any help. And so I guess they assumed, like many others must have assumed, that that was just the fate of this child. Nothing could be done about it. But the social worker was so angered by this situation, so touched that a situation in the city where she lived could tolerate this, that she decided she would take on this boy's case as her own case, and she did so. She eliminated or went through all the bureaucratic red tape. She found an orthopedic surgeon who would perform the surgeries that were needed, and the medical college there in Louisville agreed to the surgeries as well. This young boy was healed physically. He got to the place where he could walk normally. And she said that two years later, her office door opened and a young man walked in, did a cartwheel in front of her desk. She thought to herself, if I never accomplish anything else in life, I've had an impact here. There's one life that I can point to and I can say, I actually made a difference in that young man's life. There was a pause, according to the article, in the presentation of this case history. And she asked a question to her audience. Do you know where that boy is today? I guess caught up in the idealism of the moment, people were probably thinking, well, I bet he's an orthopedic surgeon himself, or maybe he's a social worker or a teacher. She said, no said he's in the state penitentiary where he was sentenced for life, having committed one of the most gruesome crimes imaginable. And then through tears, she said, I was able to teach him how to walk, but there was no one around who could teach him where to walk or why to walk. Now, if there was a, a stoic in the audience that day, I rather doubt it because most social workers cannot afford to be stoics. But a stoic would say, see there, there's nothing you can do about the plight of the human condition. 
things are as they've always been and you're going to waste your time trying to address that. But if there were believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people with an Easter faith sitting in that audience, I think they would retort and they would say, yes, we can do something about it with God's help. And by God, we will do something about it. We can not only teach a child how to walk, but where to walk and why to walk. We are not hopeless. We have a God who can do amazing things beyond us and even through us. Some of you listening in today may find yourself in a very hopeless situation, seemingly hopeless. Maybe you're in a hopeless marriage. Maybe you're in a hopeless job. Maybe you're filled with despair because of the plight of the nation and its divisiveness or the prospects for humanity given what's going on in the world. And you're tempted to give in. Just eat, drink, and be merry and let nature take its course. But if Christ is risen from the grave by the power and love of God, then things can be different within each of us, in our homes and workstations, in our world. And we can help them to be different as well. If Christ is risen, then there's no problem that we cannot attempt to address. Or as one writer in the New Testament put it, all things are possible in Christ, but we have to dare to believe that they're possible, even to attempt to make a change. On this fourth Sunday of Eastertide, I would remind you that the resurrection of our Lord is the ultimate demonstration of what God has been trying to communicate to his people for generation after generation after generation, which is that eye has not seen, nor his ear heard, nor has the human heart even conceived what is possible for those who love God. Christ is risen, risen indeed. And that being the case, let us move forward as an Easter people and give ourselves to addressing the needs about us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.